Most of us have heard of, of seasonality. Many animals are, are more obviously seasonal than humans in that maybe they hibernate like a bear, but humans are actually seasonal as well. It's not only that these oscillations are coming from the choices that we make personally, they're, they're really generated, it seems, within the brain, coordinated across different systems, and that really applies to the menstrual cycle as well. So one of the things that I was lucky enough to get to work with was trying to use continuous data to create tools that would allow us to make accurate predictions about future fertility within a given cycle. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, it's here, the last episode of 2021. Oh my goodness, can you believe it? What a year. I am just so, so grateful. I know there's a lot of scary things happening in the world, but I've just learned so much this year. I've been able to interview so many amazing people and share what I've learned with all of you guys. You guys are amazing. I just love this community. I am so grateful for it, and I can't wait to see what's in store in 2022. Today's conversation was super amazing with Azure Grant. I was introduced to Azure through Harpreet, the CEO of Aura. I immediately connected with her and I knew there was just so much stuff that we could talk about. The research that she's doing on ultradian rhythms and especially female-specific research is just so, so cool. I really think you guys will enjoy this episode. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash rhythms. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. And then check out my Instagram, Melanie Avalon. Also find the announcement post about this episode and comment to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with. And to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body. So it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, 
their vitamin C serum. They have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Azure Grant. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. Let me tell listeners the backstory behind today's episode. So as listeners know, I am really, really obsessed with my biohacking device called an Aura Ring. For listeners who are not familiar, it's a ring that measures your heart rate variability, your body temperature, your activity levels, your respiration, and it really helps just get a picture of your body's rhythms and how you're responding to stress. And it's been a really valuable tool in my personal health journey. Listeners have become really obsessed with it as well. And I've had the CEO, Harpreet, on the show twice to do an episode on it. And I think after our last episode, we got off the call and he was like, you have got to meet this girl, Azure Grant, that we're working with. Basically, she's been working with Aura on the fertility aspect part of O-ring and the temperature and the implications of that. She has like a lot of really, really cool research that she's doing. So I did a call and we immediately connected. There were so many incredible things that we could talk about. Azure's doing all of this incredible work with just different rhythms in the body and particularly things with women specifically. And There's just so much information in there. And we were talking right before the call. I read all of the studies that she's worked on, all of her published research. And it's, listeners, it's so fascinating. It's so many things that people just aren't talking about. So this conversation, I knew it just had to happen. So Azure, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for that very exciting introduction. That was so kind. And thank you for for reading everything and for the opportunity to, to be here and talk to you. Also... 
congratulations in advance. Azure's actually submitting her dissertation today, which is crazy, for her PhD in neuroscience. She's at the University of California at Berkeley. So congratulations in advance for that. By the time this airs, I'm, well, I don't know. How, when do you find out? Like, how does that work? When do you find out? I think it will almost definitely have, have gone through by then, I hope. So it, it tends to be a pretty quick process once you send it off into the void and, and people sign it. But thank you so much. It's definitely an exciting day. It's very exciting. And so your, your undergrad and your grad was in neuroendocrinology, correct? That's correct. It's technically a, a neuroscience PhD, and the work is really at the intersection of neuroendocrinology, biological rhythms, and participatory research. So many things. And we were talking before the call, like there's so many different directions we could go with this. I guess just to start things off, could you tell listeners a little bit about your personal story? So what got you interested in the work that you're doing today? What are you focusing on? What are you interested in? Just give listeners a picture about yourself. Absolutely. So I came to Cal as an undergrad with a really strong interest in neuroscience, having grown up in particular, learning about the interaction between the reproductive system and medication. I had some some family who were taking some rather experimental uh, forms of hormone replacement therapy and really got to watch how they were affected by this over their lives. And it gave me a sense of what the term biological rhythm meant from a rather young age. So I, I came into school not necessarily knowing that I was going to end up studying women's health, but realizing as I went along that it really resonated with a lot of my interests and a lot of my earlier life experiences. So one of the stories that I like to tell really briefly is I ended up working in a lab as an undergraduate at Lance Kriegsfeld's lab, who would go on to be one of my PhD mentors. He's a wonderful person. We were using continuous temperature sensors to monitor ovulatory cycles in rodents. And after a while, it became clear that we we had some sensors lying around the lab that could maybe collect the same data in humans. And I was encouraged by other lab members that maybe we should try collecting some of this data on ourselves. And that really opened the door to seeing the connection between what one can do in the lab and what one might be able to do in the real world. And this ended up teaching me so much about you know, my, my own physiology and a lot about the field of human female reproductive research. So I was kind of hooked at that point and there's a lot else to the story, but it's a, it's a field that I love and feel very passionate about. Was Aura Ring around at that time with like the temperature tracking? Aura Ring came into my awareness a little bit later, although I think they would have been around as a company at the time. Once I, I learned about them and got to be introduced to them and start using their finger temperature data stream, I found it really interesting. But originally, we we're actually using really whatever we could get our hands on, these tiny devices called the iButton, which I think are designed to be shown thrown in a shipping car and track the temperature of lettuce as it travels across the country or something like that. But it was very scrappy to begin with. And and when Aura came on the scene, that was much more of a, a self-contained solution that I could imagine being used by many people, not just those of us willing to tape strange devices to our wrists. <laughs> yeah. So I think one of, one of the most like mind-blowing things people don't think about, so when people think about rhythms, I think people are pretty familiar with circadian rhythm. So you know, a 24-hour cycle. I think some people are starting to hear about infradian rhythms, you know, cycles longer than 24 hours. I feel like 
very few people are aware of, I don't even know if I'm going to say it right, ultradian rhythms. That's perfect. So less than 24 hours. So what are these rhythms? (laughs) For listeners that are not familiar, what are the different types of rhythms in the body and what do they signify? It's a great question. And it's also one of the questions that really drew me into being interested in this field. So when I think about biological rhythms, one of the best analogies that I've heard for this is to think about a symphony orchestra in which you're listening to a rhythm, but you might have faster and slower rhythms interposed being played by different instruments, being played by different sections of of instruments working together and creating this synchronized, coherent song made up of many different rhythmic components. And I think our, our bodies are very much like this, even if they're not producing sound, they're producing hormones, electrical impulses, behaviors in a very synchronized manner. So so what does that mean on a on a more concrete level? If we start at the a much longer time scale of rhythm and then sort of work down to to faster subrhythms, most of us have heard of of seasonality. Many animals are are more obviously seasonal than humans in that maybe they hibernate like a bear, but humans are actually seasonal as well. Our blood sugar tends to have a seasonal rhythm. Our our sleep tends to change across the seasons. You might think about sleeping a little bit more in the winter. Actually, many different systems in our body show this seasonal change. Women in particular have a rhythm of the ovulatory or menstrual cycle that takes place about once a month. I can call it Every, every three to six weeks and be a bit more inclusive. But this is really interesting, particular to, to females. And a little bit faster than this is the, the circadian rhythm, the one that most of us have heard of, thanks especially to that recent Nobel Prize that was shared by, by circadian researchers. These are rhythms that occur approximately once every 24 hours and are coordinated by not only a central clock at the base of the brain, but are also coordinated by oscillators in most of the cells throughout our body interacting together. So those daily rhythms are important for you know, the functioning of, of systems all across our body from our metabolism, reproduction, nervous system, behavior, cognition. And that's the, the sort of second fastest timescale that I like to think about. And then, although it it really is turtles all the way down, we could go down to talking about oscillations of neurons at the brain at very high frequencies. But the the place that I'll, I'll stop is talking about what you mentioned: this ultradian or within a day rhythms. I found these ones extremely fascinating, starting in undergraduate, because they, I think, once once one is introduced to the concept, these within a day ultradian rhythms become very intuitive. So if you can imagine waking up and and going about your day and maybe you get hungry three or four times a day. Maybe you have periods of work where you are really focused and then you get a little bit tired and need to step back and take a break. Maybe you have times when you can really sit and be still. And then other times throughout the day when you want to get up and move around. All of these are examples of ultradian rhythms and they really are baked into the brain and body. So it's not only that these oscillations are coming from the choices that we make personally, they're they're really generated, it seems, within the brain coordinated across different systems. And in particular, bringing this back to the topic of, of network physiology or, or female reproduction, these rhythms change in a very stereotyped manner across the ovulatory cycle, as well as across other points in, in female productive life, like adolescence or, or menopause or, or pregnancy. So on the whole, our, our bodies are 
these massively coordinated coupled oscillator systems at multiple timescales, really acting like this giant, beautiful symphony across all of our different systems. And I've always found this this concept very compelling since I've learned about it. Can I just say, I am so enjoying this conversation. This is so fascinating. Like nobody, I mean, people talk about circadian rhythms a lot, but the other stuff, I just don't hear much about it. So seasonal rhythms are infradian rhythms. Yeah. The the breakdown of language there is infra infradian, meaning longer than a day, dia day, circadian, meaning about a day. Ultradian is a little bit more of a, a funny word, meaning beyond a day. So in this case, you I tend to think about it as ultra fast, but that's the the basic breakdown of language. So a major question I have about all of these rhythms. So where are they stored? Is it primarily determined internally by the various cells in the body? Is it more determined by external factors like light? Like what is driving these rhythms? It's a very good question. And it does to a certain extent depend on the rhythm of choice. So I might focus in a little bit more on the shorter time scales, but these rhythms are endogenously generated and peripherally reinforced, meaning that systems within the body help keep these oscillations going, but that the body, of course, is listening to the outside world. So cues like light in the environment, for instance, the length of the day for seasonal rhythm is a big one. Things like temperature in the environment, even things on the timescale of the ovulatory cycle like the, the presence of other females or other males in the environment can influence that rhythm on the within a day time scale in certain species, things like the presence of predators in the environment that are maybe out at certain times of day and not others can influence that. So it's, it's really a combination of both. So generated within the body and then always listening in to reinforcement from the environment. And the, the reason that I think that that's really important is that the goal of our bodies, if we can attribute a goal to them, is to be keeping synchronized to and adapted or synchronized with and adapted to the environment. So for instance, if an animal wants to keep very well synchronized with the 24-hour day and night, their body might not have a perfect 24-hour clock on its own. It might have a, a clock that's 23 hours and, and 50 minutes each day. But if that animal or, or person is constantly seeing the daylight in the morning and getting food, food cues at the right time, then their body can be constantly doing these little tunings and little adjustments to keep synchronized with the constraints of, of the day. I mean, what, the peripheral cues, were they the original cause? Like the initial 24-hour rhythm, would it have been determined by the peripheral cues and then it became endogenous evolutionarily? Yeah, I think that's a great question and an idea that that makes a lot of sense. I'm not an evolutionary biologist by any means, but when we think about cells in, in more primordial times and what would have been useful or adaptive for them to do, they would have been looking to when energy was available in their environment for them to take in, metabolize, grow, and reproduce. And historically speaking, there's more energy coming into the earth during the daylight hours and, and less during the, the nighttime. So we can imagine that one of the very early functions of clocks, so clocks in, in bacteria, clocks in, in organisms that would then photosynthesize, would be 
enabling processes to occur within the cell that enabled energy capture during the day and quiescence or repair during the nighttime. And although it's been you know, a very, very long geologic time from then to now, we're now exquisitely adapted, not only to the fact that there's more energy around during the day, but that we're surrounded by organisms that are all on their own clocks, trying to adapt to the needs of their environment. And whether we're avoiding predators or seeking out the the coffee shop that we want to go to at the time when it opens right in the morning, we're constantly making these adaptations of trying to adjust our physiology to our environment. That process of adjustment is is continual and it's and it's one of the the battles that I think we all go through socially today in terms of trying to adjust to a really rapidly changing environment that tries to kind of keep us turned on all the time even though our our bodies expect to have these very stable rhythmic periods of activity and rest. Yeah, I feel like especially in the biohacking world I mean, because when you see like the biohacking universe, it can seem like, oh, it's all of this technology to try to do something that is beyond normal human experience. But I think so much of it is literally just trying to return our bodies to that natural rhythm that we're accustomed to. So, you know, like tackling your blue light exposure, your sleep, like it's really just trying to mitigate our modern environment to go back to that original rhythm in a way. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really great perspective and and really well put. I think this is one of the things that I really love and and resonate with about the self-tracking community is that it's not necessarily about trying to overcome the limits of biology, but it's more about trying to have a deeper understanding of one's own physiology and then learn how to more optimally work with that so that we can be healthy and, and accomplish the things that we want to accomplish. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas, 
melanieavalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. The menstrual cycle and all of those rhythms. A question I actually get a lot from listeners is, are those rhythms always happening even if you like don't have a cycle or you're you know postmenopausal or are they only when you have active certain hormones happening that's a great question so a little bit about the menstrual cycle in general I think most of us had a, a health class at some point even though it might have been a while where we're shown this picture of curves of estrogen and progesterone and LH across a, an approximately 28-day window. And we're taught that earlier in the cycle, in the follicular preovulatory phase, estrogen undergoes this rise and then a fall, triggering a, a surge of the hormone, luteinizing hormone and LH, which then hopefully, but not always, triggers an ovulation. Then there's a big hill of the hormone progesterone, and then estrogen and progesterone fall off at the end and, and we get a, a menstruation again. And this curve is often all we're presented with about the menstrual cycle early on. And we're often presented with it in, in maybe a way where we expect it to be not very variable and maybe not necessarily affect other systems. One thing that was very interesting for me to to learn back in the day was that this oscillation of of hormones is not only impacting reproduction, it's it's also impacting heart rate, heart rate variability, body temperature, metabolism, even mood and cognition as people are finding out more more recently. And so when I spoke earlier about how our bodies comprise coupled oscillator systems at multiple time scales across the body, that really applies to the menstrual cycle as well. So it's it's not only a change that affects reproduction, but it it can affect many, many things in our lives. And so when you ask if a person doesn't have an ovulatory cycle for any number of reasons, whether age-related or or choice-related, that is a, a very open question in in some regards, but it does appear in many cases that in the absence of an ovulatory cycle, some systems may possibly remain on that rhythm for a little bit, but but that over time those systems may may decohere and and lose that that time scale of oscillation. And that's something that we've seen borne out in some peripheral metrics, especially body temperature, and that seem to be borne out in other systems as well. But I think the question that you're asking is is very much a topic that needs to be studied more at each particular stage of life or under each particular condition that results in the absence of an ovulatory cycle. So it's possible that if a person is on hormonal birth control that is completely affecting that cycle, that they might be losing some of those rhythms? Absolutely. So I think hormonal birth control is a really interesting example. So if you're thinking about something like imagine a implant that delivers a, a tonic dose of something like a, a progestin, progesterone analog, that is going to prevent the person from ovulating. And if you look at their continuous data, it, it does most often prevent that person from having an ovulatory cycle in the typical fashion. And we still don't know a ton about, you know, maybe there's still some system in the body that is that is keeping time in the background. But because the body is listening in for those approximately monthly oscillations of estrogen, progesterone, LH, 
because it's listening in for approximately monthly oscillations in the receptors of those hormones. Once that's not happening anymore, for whatever reason, including the the tonically high dose of of progestin, then other systems may have really lost that timekeeper. It's not impossible that there are, are other contributing timekeepers to the system that are not as well identified yet. But from what I've seen so far in the cases of, of contraceptive use, it does seem like it's a, a fairly effective way to remove ovulatory cycle-associated oscillations across systems, at least in terms of heart rate, heart rate variability, temperature, and blood glucose. So, because now I'm just thinking more, because I think when people are trying to really get a grasp or an understanding of their cycle, oftentimes we just focus on the hormone levels, but it sounds like because of all of these rhythms, like there's so much more than just the reproductive hormones. Like the hormones could be a certain level, but there are all these other systems that are sort of like listening in or adapt to it accordingly beyond just the hormones. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit like if you think about a spider web and you poke one part of it, say that poke is is adding hormonal birth control to a system that isn't only felt in that one part of the spider web. It, it resonates throughout the network and has ripple effects. And those ripple effects are something that are under study, but, but that there's much, much more to learn about. But it's it's very difficult to impact one system in the body in isolation and and not expect there to be effects in other systems as well. Just in general, the clinical literature, what do you think are the implications of so much of the literature being done on males compared to females and how these rhythms might be affecting things? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think very much an, an ongoing issue. So Irv Zucker, who's one of the one of the fathers of circadian biology, was a professor at, at UC Berkeley and was around when I was on campus, a very sweet guy and very dedicated to this particular cause of arguing for the inclusion of female subjects and, and women in clinical trials, in research more generally. And and he fought for this for a very long time and, and continues to do so and actually, you know, helped helped succeed in in getting it mandated that uh, women be included in clinical trials, which is fantastic. So but what's the result of for a very long time women not being included in research. So one of the arguments for for this originally was that oh because females have an ovulatory cycle that must make them very variable and we want to reduce variance from outside causes in our studies so we should probably only use males but but the funny thing is that when you look across many different systems in the body males tend to be more variable or at least as variable in in a in a great number of systems and I encourage listeners to to look up some of Irv's papers with Brian Prendergast or, or Ben Smar or others on Annalise Beery on this topic because they're really fascinating and and they do make one question this idea that that women are are, are more variable because it, it doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. In fact, to the contrary, the the presence of the ovulatory cycle seems to impart a, a very predictable variability. So even if different systems are oscillating up and down, they're doing so in a way that one can learn to anticipate and therefore adapt to over time. Whereas in the absence of that of that time scale of oscillation, males can can often 
be a bit more variable on a, on a fast time scale or perhaps in a less predictable manner. So my hope is that in the future, this trend continues. And I think we've seen a lot of progress across my lifetime in terms of greater inclusion of, of women and, and tailoring of, of more products and services to be able to serve you know, this underserved majority of the population. But I, I think where my, my brain goes is trying to look forward to other underserved portions of the lifespan. For instance, pregnancy is a, is a time of life during which many pharmaceuticals are, are not yet tested, during which we still need to learn a lot about how different systems are, are working compared to the non-pregnant state. And, you know, that's only the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot in science that needs an uh, an extreme amount of diversification that I, I really hope, you know, we're able to able to achieve in part through doing work that involves wearable sensors at scale, in part through really making an effort to provide more education to people and more participatory research opportunities. So yeah, it's it's been really interesting to see and learn about this issue and how how researchers have approached trying to argue for inclusion of of more diverse populations in in research. First of all, thank you so much for what you're doing. I'm just, I'm so passionate about this. So for listeners, we'll put links in the show notes to all the studies that Azure has worked on. But speaking to that, the pregnancy, one of your studies was talking about like the fertility window. And so what have you found in your research on predicting the fertility window for normal everyday people, <laughs> the way it's done historically and the, um, the potential future of it? Yeah, absolutely. So one interest that I, I have held for a while is in the interactions between the autonomic nervous system. So thinking about outputs like changing heart rate regulation, changing heart rate variability interaction, thermoregulation, so body temperature outputs, and then reproductive hormones. Something that that many listeners will have probably heard of over time is that one can use an oral thermometer in the early morning. And if you're careful and, and do this at the same time consistently every day, you can see a pattern emerge across your menstrual cycle. And what that pattern is, is lower temperatures during the follicular or pre-ovulatory phase, and then elevated temperatures after ovulation. The reason that that is thought to happen is in part because estradiol has some, some substrate in the brain to directly help cool the body. And progesterone in reverse, in combination with estradiol, has the neural substrate to warm the body as well as influence systems like metabolism to, to increase metabolism a little bit, which also heats you up. And so this really fascinating pattern was identified over 100 years ago, or at least recorded over 100 years ago. It's probably been known about for much longer by this Dutch gynecologist, Theodore van de Velde, and he wrote this big long book about how one could theoretically use body temperature to monitor not only the ovulatory cycle, but pregnancy and menopause. And this has helped contribute over time to a lot of study in that field, as well as taking charge of your fertility is a book that many people will know about how to use oral thermometry, also called basal body temperature or BBT to track the ovulatory cycle. So with that background, what have we learned by using more continuous rather than once per day metrics to try to understand something about fertility. One of the challenges with this, you know, uh, over a hundred year old technique is that it doesn't provide predictions about the future. At least it, it doesn't provide very accurate predictions about the future. It can tell you pretty roughly 
when you ovulated in the past. It can tell you when you're likely to no longer be fertile because, you know, about 24 hours after ovulation, one is much less likely to be able to get pregnant as opposed to the approximate week leading up to ovulation, although that's a, a pretty variable window. If you're an individual going about your daily life and wanting to know, hey, when am I going to be able to get pregnant next week? Should I try to conceive or should I try to avoid pregnancy? Only having tools that accurately can tell you about your past is not as useful. It's a, a bit like having a weather report that tells you it was raining yesterday. It's not going not gonna to help you plan your vacation for next week. So one of the things that I was lucky enough to get to work with some really amazing people with in graduate school was trying to use continuous data to create tools that would allow us to make accurate predictions about future fertility within a given cycle. And so that's something that we were able to do was to say, if we look at patterns within a day, biological rhythmic patterns of body temperature and heart rate variability, we can, in, in essence, see when the pre-ovulatory luteinizing hormone surge is coming. And theoretically, if this were validated and extended in larger, more diverse cohorts to be able to say, all right, we're going to, to tell you that in the next few days, you're likely to have an LH surge, which means, you know, within the next few days after that, you're likely to ovulate. And, and this would be giving a person much more time ahead of time to be able to understand when they're, when they're likely to be fertile and then to plan accordingly in their lives. And then to do that without necessarily having to take a urine-based hormone test or remember to take an oral body temperature and hopefully this kind of thing could could be done in the background such that a person could, you know, be receiving an alert or or kind of, you know, having a more passive manner of tracking. So I've never done any of the personal body temperature fertility tracking. Like how big of a surge is it in body temperature? Is it like a, a degree? You know, that's a great question. And it actually depends on the location of body that the measurement is taken from. So within the mouth where these measurements have historically been taken, it can be, you know, about a degree, maybe a little less. So it's not a it's not a huge fluctuation. And the magnitude of that fluctuation can depend on the person, can depend on the weight gain or weight loss. But yeah, in general, it's it's quite a small a small variation within other parts of the body. So say the finger, the wrist, the abdomen, the core. So a, a sensor that is is ingested or or recorded from somewhere within in the body, the magnitude of that change can can vary a little bit. Yeah. And I feel like that also speaks to the massive importance of constantly, would it be tracking, I don't know if it'd be latitude or longitude. So like constantly tracking body temperature, you know, in one area, like with an aura ring or something over an extended period of time so that it can learn what a surge actually looks like in the context of that person's entire body. Just wearing things like a CGM, for example, or my aura ring, it's becoming clearer and clearer to me each day how like how a single snapshot of testing something could give a really potentially misleading picture about everything. Like when you don't have the context of how things are changing. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I think people often talk about this as if you were to turn on the radio for 10 seconds each day, you might get a sense of like, oh, is 
who, who might be speaking or maybe I heard a few words and can hear whether the context sounds good or bad, but you're really not going to know what the story is as compared to if you listen to the radio all day long, every day, you're going to learn a lot more. And I think the same is, can really be said of continuous metrics, whether it's glucose, body temperature, heart rate, you know, hopefully our, more of our hormones in the future or whether it's single time point metrics. So the the finger prick glucose test, the oral thermometer, the quickly taking your pulse at the doctor's office, having the opportunity to see each metric from the body as a signal rather than as a single number completely changes how you can interpret, learn, and make predictions for the future based on that output. Speaking to that, a lot of people will just get an annual checkup, for example. So they might get one blood test once a year showing everything at that one moment in time and the conclusions they might draw, it could be so many different things. So one of your papers, you were talking about how cholesterol changes throughout the day. And honestly, that paper blew my mind. It's one of the things I think it's going to stick with me for the rest of my life because, you know, there's so much debate out there about cholesterol levels and LDL and triglycerides and HDL. And this paper, maybe you can elaborate on it a little bit, the work that you did, you know, looking at how those levels fluctuated throughout the day in different individuals and how did it fluctuate? Um, <laughs> it was very surprising to me. Absolutely. And, and I appreciate you you reading this. So this topic actually was a was a big surprise to me when I learned about this as well. I'd grown up with the idea that you go and get your cholesterol checked at the doctor's office and then you learn whether you have high cholesterol and whether you're likely to get heart disease and and then if your cholesterol is too high you get put on a statin it, it lowers it back down and and end of story. And then over the course of of this project that generated the paper you you referred to, which was done in concert with the Quantified Self community as a, as a participant-led project. It was a really amazing group of people to I was lucky to work with. We ended up collecting cholesterol data from finger prick assays at times all across the day, including some very dedicated participants, including uh, Stephen Jonas and Ben Smar, and many others who took these measurements every single hour of the day. And we learned that cholesterol, as you might expect, varies on time of day. That had been reported a bit in the literature previously. What we learned most was that cholesterol could actually cross risk categories within a single day. And so although this is something that I, I think is part of medical knowledge, it is not something that an, an individual is necessarily going to know when they go into to get a blood test. So cholesterol and triglycerides are higher in the afternoon hours than they are in the morning hours. And almost every individual, or maybe it was even every individual in this cohort crossed at least one risk category. So say from healthy to moderate risk or moderate risk to high risk across the course of a single day. Meaning that if that individual had gone into the doctor at 3 p.m. versus 8 a.m., they might have received different feedback about whether they needed to start taking uh, medication or whether they needed to be concerned about the these test results. You know, put into context for for a lot of us in the study, including people who who had been given that kind of feedback from clinicians in the past, that time of day matters. That single time point assays can give very different results depending on when they're taken. 
one of the the most fun parts about this study was because it was a, a participant-led research project, each individual in the cohort came to the project with a personal question or hypothesis that they wanted to answer in the course of the study. And we got to put a couple of those case studies into the manuscript overall. And one had to do with how do triglycerides coordinate with uh, self-perceived hunger over the day, as you might expect. So triglycerides, fat in the blood, go up after you eat an, a nice fatty meal. When this person was hungry, their triglycerides were low. When this person was feeling nice and full, their triglycerides were relatively higher. And they made this beautiful chart of perceived hunger and and trigs across an entire day where you can see both the circadian and these interacting ultradian rhythms. And beyond that, another participant tracked cholesterol across her menstrual cycle and showed this this lovely curve where there was actually a really marked change from like about 170 to 220 over the course of her menstrual cycle that she had not previously been aware of but but you know that would they would impact the the feedback she was likely to get from her from her doctor depending on the phase of cycle that that she would go into the clinic so yeah it was a it was a really interesting process not only to see the the scientific data, but really to put it in a personal context for each of the participants and to hear their stories and feedback about how this information would influence what they thought about the feedback that they received at a clinic, would influence maybe when they chose to go into a clinic, and really made everyone think about the historical context for how risk categories were determined and how treatments were designed to treat population averages rather than specific individual needs. And that we're at this interesting point of time where we finally have enough data to really start to understand an individual's experience, but we don't have enough scientific knowledge at an aggregate level about those types of individuals to be able to create as targeted treatments as we would maybe like. So it was a very fun kind of bleeding edge type of project. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. 
Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalonsCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalonsCloset.com. Yeah, because that was one of the notes I wrote down from it was that every participant at some point crossed into a risk category based on the time that it was taken. Like this is the type of study that I, so I don't, I don't know. So many times there are studies that get sensationalized in the media (laughs) with like these crazy headlines. um, And you're like, is that actually what the study said? But honestly, like, I feel like you should submit this study to like a PR firm because I mean, this could sensation, you know, because this could like, I want everybody to know this. Like people get very, very, fixated and concerned about their cholesterol panels. And like you said, people get put on statins and just the implications of this, that had they taken the test at a certain, at a different time that day, it could have potentially been a very different picture. It's very confusing though. So like having done that study for you personally, if you were to get a cholesterol panel, like having this knowledge, how do you personally interpret your own data when you get a cholesterol panel? That's a really great question. And I I think the whole topic was really a, a rabbit hole into, you know, there there's a lot of discussion about the interpretation of cholesterol and what it means for heart disease and what kind of particle are you are you looking at size-wise and how do you treat it? And these are very active, ongoing discussions that that definitely I think outpace what we're commonly told as individuals about about how to think about these metrics. So I don't want to like indicate that that this is like the only thing talking about this. It's far from it. It was a it was a small study, but it it really did open our eyes to this whole world that these arguments are happening. And so, you know, I, I think it's it's one piece of context that I would bring with me when I go to the doctor and I get a single time point metric, because I do know that when these risk categories were established, for instance, that they were established on data points taken from people at multiple phases of, of circadian uh, rhythmicity and, and multiple phases of ultradian rhythm, and they weren't perfectly controlled in this manner. So there is a sense in which risk is calculated based on having a sufficiently high level at any time of of uh, day or or under any condition. But I I think what it mainly brings home to me is to not necessarily make my decisions based on any single one measurement if that measurement isn't in a very crazy high risk category. And also to 
try to work with a clinician who has an understanding of variability of health metrics over time and who is willing to have a discussion with me about interpreting the finding. I think that's really the the most important thing to me is is that the more I learn, the more it, it stresses needing to have a close relationship with a with a caretaker and to be able to discuss new findings as they as they arrive. I love that so much. And yeah, I hadn't even thought about what you just said about the implications looking backwards at the conclusions that we've drawn about health based on all of these population studies. You know, now we know that maybe there are different potential readings that could have happened. And it, I guess the trends would probably still emerge, but it definitely begs for a more nuanced picture of just everything. <laughs> I think the more we learn, the more we, you know, have a, a grain of salt to add to interpretation of past findings. And I think that really can have some positive effects for for many people in terms of encouraging individuals to gain more health literacy, do more self-monitoring, and hopefully in the future have more resources allocated towards giving people a, a more in-depth health education, training more literacy skills into the population, even training people on how to use the scientific method in an everyday sense to to reason about their own health. So yeah, I think it points out a lot of a lot of ways in which we could improve and and provide better for one another as a society. The other note I took from it that I thought was so so interesting was that HDL was the one factor that didn't seem to significantly change based on time. Yeah, HDL was a was a little bit more variable based on on individual, but I also don't want to overinterpret based on the the results that this one particular test can give because now there are there are a lot of different categories of of particle size that that one looks everything from very low density lipoprotein or VLDL to LDL to HDL to um you know even even more dense categories. So I think what I would take away from that is I think it would be very interesting if it has not been done already to do this kind of time of day analysis looking at a full breakdown of particle size and then to to try to really understand specifically what the circadian dynamics are of regulation of of each one of these outputs. For studies like that, did they take finger pricks every hour? How did they Test it. Yeah, these were these were finger prick tests, which, as you can imagine, these were very dedicated participants. Oh my goodness! As far as people getting more actively involved in research studies, is there a, a platform or a way that people can can do that, or how do people get more involved in things like this? It's a very good question. There have become, well, I would say, many more opportunities have emerged over the past, call it decade, and especially within the past five years, for people to get involved in research projects of interest or to find communities of other people who have similar personal questions that they want to answer with their own health data. So the Quantified Self is a community of people. It was founded in the Bay Area a little over a decade ago and has grown into a global community since then. That was my introduction to the world of self-tracking and the world of trying to develop participant-led research methods. But there are communities all over the world. There you know, patients like me, clinical groups, one in, in San Diego called Project Apollo that I'm a, a big fan of, BioLoop Sleep. There are a ton of these out there. And I'm, I'm only mentioning a few that I'm thinking of off the top of my head. Citizen Science Alliance, Open Humans, there, there are, really are a ton. I think even things like 
platforms such as meetup.com have uh, enabled interest groups to to find each other and to try to figure out how to coordinate coordinate on on projects of interest but i i think this is really an ongoing question of there isn't one single platform to my knowledge that serves the purpose of connecting people interested in creating participatory research projects on any topic and that really provides the the skills and resources to get those to happen i, I think it's still a rapidly changing and growing field that I I hope more people become interested in and that I particularly hope can be more integrated into education. Now I'm just thinking I'm like future business endeavor here, (laughs) start like a centralized platform to connect researchers to participants. That would be so cool. Oh, absolutely. No. And, and many people are, I don't want to downplay many people are, are working really hard at solving different parts of, of this problem. And the, the platforms that I mentioned are, you know, they're doing some really amazing things to try to break this, you know, problem of, of trying to create a new form of, of research that involves people in, in each stage of the scientific method. And that is really far more directly benefiting participants than traditional research has been. It's a really big, tangled, interesting problem to tackle. That's going to take a lot of different iterations to make progress towards. And I'm really encouraged by the progress that is happening so far, but, uh, but absolutely no, I think there will be many more companies in this space and hopefully a lot more investment in it in the future. I'll put links in the show notes to all of those ones that Azure mentioned. So maybe people can um, check them out and get more involved. So what was your your Q-cycle study? Was that anything that you talked about already or is that something different? So the Q-cycle study is related to what we talked about earlier in terms of using continuous temperature and heart rate variability rhythms to anticipate when a preovulatory LH surge is likely to occur. So we talked a little bit about it, but I can give you kind of the the rundown on it if you would like. Sure. Yes. As I said, my my research interests are in network physiology, the study of coordination among different systems in the body and time. And the subfield that I've focused in has brought me into female reproductive health, focusing on how thermoregulation, say body temperature, autonomic nervous system, and the reproductive system interact. And it turns out that these systems appear to be very closely coupled and actually to help regulate one another for within the brain, in particular in the hypothalamus. And that concept is one of the things that helped motivate the creation of Q-Cycle. So Q-Cycle was a study that grew out of having been lucky enough to have the chance to work with Quantified Self and having met a really impressive group of people interested in monitoring the ovulatory cycle, pregnancy, and menopause using time series data from wearable devices. I actually you know, met a lot of these people through the cholesterol study when I was, when I was getting to work with QS full-time. So I ended up proposing a study in grad school about investigating continuous temperature, heart rate, heart rate variability, and reproductive hormone patterns across the female lifespan. And we hypothesized that those close interactions could enable a person to make predictions and assessments of their reproductive status. So for instance, having an LH surge, uh, about to hit menopause, pregnant, without necessarily measuring any hormones at all, purely from analyzing features of temperature and cardiac output. So this hypothesis was was intriguing to us and was based on a lot of historical work in the field of ultradian rhythms and and coupled oscillations and we got to form a cohort of self trackers interested in monitoring their own reproductive health and develop a project that would enable everyone to collect data of personal interest while contributing to 
this larger group-wide research question of could we anticipate when LH surges occur, which is the, the paper that we ended up putting out last year, was an individual that was menopausal differentiable from individuals who was premenopausal? And then what does what does pregnancy look like was a question we ended up following up on later. So the the Q cycle study was very enjoyable because A, everybody that was a, a part of it was an individual who really wanted to learn about their own reproductive health and who came into the study with some kind of question or motivation that they wanted to answer using the study data. And we got to to work closely get, together not only to collect that ADA, data, but also to develop questions, develop individual analyses, and to correspond and do things like share papers back and forth to try to understand what we were seeing. And you know, ended up getting to to communicate for for years about this, and and a lot of these people we still keep in touch. It was very satisfying from a scientific point of view, and from knowing that we got to watch each other learn along the way, and that really in, reinforced for me an interest in the process of of what we call participatory, or in its most extreme form, participant led research. I think it it very much helped with being able to interpret the data to know each individual's personal context surrounding that data. Are you actively communicating or working with Aura with their developments with all of this? Aura was actually very helpful for that particular project because they donated the devices that were used. So yeah, they had they had been very helpful from, you know, they they developed this very cool device. I don't actually work for them, but my you know, have had a lot of experience getting to know them over time. And I think they're at this interesting point as a company where they have a lot of extremely valuable data. And I think one of their best qualities historically has been a willingness to openly share their raw data and their raw minute by minute time series with researchers for the purpose of of making new discoveries. And that, you know, is a was a is a really rare and kind of precious quality that that companies don't tend to preserve over time. So yeah, I, I think that that was fantastic. And and they, you know, did go on to serve projects. One was called Tempredict, run by uh, Ashley Mason, uh, Rick Hecton, and Ben Smarr, and others to study COVID and sickness throughout the pandemic. They also had donated some retrospective data about pregnancy for research and, and are involved in a lot of exciting projects. So my hope is that that, that continues. Is it individual users' data or is it anonymous like data? Oh, that's a good question. I think the the point I was trying to get across is that over the course of, of there being a company, they have been part of some really exciting academic collaborations wherein Aura users can opt in to participate in a study and share data with researchers for the purpose of scientific discovery. And I think that process of academic public collaboration is super important and is also um can also be quite rare, especially when the goal is to rapidly turn around findings that are shared with the public in an open and, and validatable, verifiable manner. I mean, I, I don't know what they do. I'm, I'm, you know, an outside academic person, but, but the hope is that it's limited things of a big brother nature. Yeah, no, same here. And actually everything that you just said, that's what I really saw when COVID happened. And yeah, they were asking for people who wanted to participate in, you know, a certain arm with the data. And a lot of my listeners did that and um, thought it was really cool. And they've talked about it a lot in my Facebook group. So I agree. That was one of the first things I thought when I saw them doing that with COVID. I was like, that's so cool that they're like, it's very 
forward thinking and it's very present and it gets people involved like right now, (laughs) which is something that you don't really experience. I I mean, I haven't experienced with any other wearable device or biohacking thing. So I think it's really, really promising for the future of wearables, of what we can learn about everybody, about science and health conditions. So I I think it's a really great thing. Yeah, I'm I'm super proud of and impressed with the the researchers working to make that happen and and make those collaborations work because it is the kind of thing where when we look at the the apples and and Fitbits of the world and say, "Hey, there's there's all this data, why is this not serving individuals more?" and it gets very caught up in all these ideas of, you know, how can the business protect itself for as long as possible and their growth and there's a lot of secrecy involved and a lot of things that are kind of at odds with the practices of of academic research. And so I think it's very inspiring to watch private public partnerships that try to maintain the integrity of the scientific process and that try to also ensure they're giving back in a a prompt and open manner something to the individuals that are generating that data. So I think that's a, a very core principle to many members of the self-tracking community and many scientists that when we when we generate data, whether it's from a wearable device or or from web browsing, that that that's our data from our bodies and that that we are owners or at the very least co-owners of that information. And so finding partners that that uphold that kind of standard is a challenge, but it's it's great to see when there are examples of that succeeding. Hi friends, an incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, (laughs) drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for 
the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm-direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Also in the wearable world and a topic that we haven't dived into yet is glucose and insulin and diabetes and metabolic health in that regards. And so I'm also the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. And so I get so many questions about blood sugar, insulin. And I mean, most people, they are going, it's something we talked about already. They are really going off of, you know, the snapshot picture that they get that one time they go to the doctor's office. And I mean, especially with blood sugar wearing a CGM, it's really eye-opening how much blood sugar changes throughout the day. But you've done interesting research on, you know, the rhythms of insulin and blood sugar control and diabetes. I was wondering if you could just tell listeners a little bit about what you found in that sphere. Absolutely. So this actually ties back again, to the quantified self community and someone named Dana Lewis, who is a, I'm not even sure what to call her, amazing person, but a combination of researcher and communicator and community leader, many, many other things. But Dana is someone who I met through through quantified self who has had type one diabetes for a long time. And, and for those of you that don't know, type one diabetes happens when an individual is no longer able to produce their own insulin, the hormone that regulates blood sugar within the body. And when an individual can't produce insulin on their own, they have to take it exogenously. So from an outside source. And that means that they're having to find a way to replace a very key hormone in the body all the time for the for the rest of life. One thing that Dana has been very integral to is to trying to build artificial pancreas systems. So basically a, a robot outside of the body that delivers insulin in an intelligent manner that is more coordinated with the body's natural and meal-induced oscillations in glucose and provide a, a healthier manner of, of regulating blue blood glucose over over life and therefore improve the the health and the quality of life with of people with type 1 diabetes so I met her through quantified self and we ended up you know writing a grant together and and wanting to to study some some large-scale blood glucose data sets including ones generated from her do-it-yourself artificial pancreas system, Open APS, and the the Night Scout service, because there are there remain a lot of open questions about what do the patterns of glucose and insulin administration look like in diabetes? How do they change based on the method of administering administering insulin? And 
you know, how do they change across life by male or female, by exercise status, by all kinds of things. It's, it is one of these worlds where now that you have the continuous glucose monitor and the data from an insulin pump, and you can get a every few minutes time series of these outputs over many years, you know, one, one can spend a whole career investigating just questions from, from those data sets. So we felt very lucky to have the opportunity to do some initial explorations in glucose and insulin data in their biological rhythms to understand how different strategies of hormone replacement impact metabolism. Is that what insulin pumps are or is that something different? This pancreas outside the body? Yeah. So that's a good thing to to break down a little bit. Um, an artificial pancreas system allows a continuous glucose monitor. So something that has a little needle that sits in the interstitial space and samples glucose every few minutes allows that device to communicate with an insulin pump, which is taking a reservoir of insulin sitting outside the body and that is able to inject it into the body in a programmable fashion. So prior to the existence of these devices, what a person with type 1 diabetes would do would be to manually measure their blood glucose with a, a finger prick assay, do a series of calculations based on, for instance, if they had just eaten something, how many grams of carb were in that meal, based on many years in in most people amassed of knowledge about how do they tend to respond to meals and tend to respond to different amounts of insulin. And that person would make a decision about manually how much insulin did they want to inject to manage that blood sugar and try to keep it within a healthy range if possible. And I, I mean, if we think about that, that process seems incredibly difficult. And in practice, people with type 1 diabetes end up being at risk for other endocrine and metabolic health problems across life, including the subsequent development of type 2 diabetes. And so the purpose of an artificial pancreas system is to take that process of listening to how much blood sugar is is currently present to listen to how many grams of carbs or or other food items a, a person has ingested to perhaps listen to the activity that that person is carrying on throughout the day so are they on a hike or are they sitting down and to integrate that into a calculation about how much insulin to provide and i think these systems are only going to become more integrative over time take in more information about that person and be able to perform better and more precise calculations. And hopefully something along that line can be doing calculations that enable assessment of that person's biological rhythms and to be able to help reinforce and maintain things like ultradian, circadian, and even longer timescales of rhythm. But that's um, those are questions that we're just beginning to address and that I'm very excited to see where they go in the future. And I think they also have really strong implications for hormone replacement therapy in other systems like the the reproductive system. Oh, that's exciting. That's that's very cool. And just hearing you say that about historically how, you know, type 1 diabetes use insulin and especially now having worn a CGM myself and seeing how much blood sugar fluctuates, that's scary. That's like just shooting in the dark with the insulin, you know? Like that's overwhelming. In some ways, yes, but I think one of the things that it makes me be appreciative of the most is the massive amount of practical knowledge, intuition, 
technical information that people with type 1 diabetes have to integrate across every single day of their lives. Like they, the, these people are very highly educated and trained, really have to pay attention to themselves. I find that level of knowledge extremely impressive. And yes, practically, we, we have seen that people that use more traditional therapy types have poorer blood glucose regulation than people who are using what's called a, a hybrid closed loop or some kind of artificial pancreas system. It's definitely a combination of a lot of human intelligence with hopefully taking some of the simpler decisions about that very complex regulatory process and, and automating them so that a person has a bit more freedom in their daily life. Actually, I'm just thinking about that more because it's true. It would make a person you know, with type 1 diabetes going through that method, they must become really in tune with their body, which is a good thing. And I'm just thinking now about how many things we do. It's not to that level of type 1 diabetes where the potential effects could be very grave um, or really, really significant, but people take like supplements really and things like that and never really test anything. It's just really interesting the, the things we do and how we interpret our experience of the world. And, you know, it's really interesting. I always wonder what the data is actually looking like. For listeners, though, if they would like to get their own CGM, because Azure, by the way, do you wear CGM often or how do you feel about CGMs? I wore one for two or three months. Oh my gosh, my uh, my personal <laughs> experience with CGMs is I, I had ghost sensations for months about was I going to knock it off whenever I took off a sweater or something like that. It was it was amazing data. I was so grateful to have it. I really want to do it again. But at the same time, it gave me much more sympathy for people who do have to wear these all the time because there is, there is a downside to having a needle in your arm 24-7. It's really, really eye-opening. And when I first used one, I, I got really addicted and I wore one for, you know, like a few months. And then I was like, okay, like no more. But now I'm back. I've... <laughs> I've been wearing one again recently. Um, I have one on right now, actually. For listeners, if you'd like to get your own, because historically there was a huge wall. You really had to have a prescription or be diabetic to get a CGM. But now there are companies that are, like we've been talking about throughout this show, bridging the gap. So you can go to melanieavalon.com slash levels CGM. That will let you skip their wait list and get a CGM or you can go to melanieavalon.com slash CGM and the code melanieavalon will get you a discount on their CGMs. So that's some resources for people. I have a very specific granular question. All of the different rhythms that we've talked about, because we've talked about how all the different processes could affect each other. Are there any rhythms that are like completely independent and not really affected by external factors that you know of? And then I have like a second part question to it. Or are all of them interconnected? That's a very interesting question. And I think different people may answer it differently. But to my knowledge, all of the timescales of rhythm that I am aware of in an intact organism do have some way of taking in information about the environment and then integrating it into the output of that system, at least when we're talking about organisms like complex mammals and or, or humans in particular. It is true that there are, these are actually very interesting, there's chi, A, B, and C, there are these molecules that if you will put them in a test tube, they will generate oscillations all on their own and, and they can just sit there oscillating. Like what are they? Are they things in our body naturally? No, they're, they're not actually um, mammalian at all. Susan Golden is a, a very cool researcher at UCSD. 
who's studied the circadian rhythms of uh, cyanobacteria for for her career, and and part of that is is looking at these chi A, B, and C is is what these things are called. Where if you if you put them together in a test tube, they can just generate these oscillations all on their own. And she's a really impressive, interesting researcher. So that is to say, there are systems where through transcription, translation, feedback loops in mammals or molecular interactions, oscillations can be generated and independently sustained. However, when we're thinking about an organism like a, like a human or, or another mammal, these systems are, are very much evolved to whether you're thinking about a very short neural timescale of milliseconds or whether you're thinking about seasonality, there's a strong component of taking in information from, from one's surroundings in order to influence the, the speed, the amplitude, the, the synchronicity of, of oscillation. So I guess I'm saying yes and no. Do you know with the, the cyanobacteria, was it in all cyanobacteria or just some species? The reason I'm wondering, like, isn't spirulina cyanobacteria. I wonder if my spirulina has its own rhythm. Unless you're harvesting it fresh, I don't think the spirulina that uh, that I have that's a nice blue powder sitting in my cabinet uh, is actively actively oscillating at all. But but no, no, you're you're right. Spirulina is uh, cyanobacteria in the genus spirulina. I don't know if they use chi A, B, and C or or another <laughs> another form of these molecules, but but yeah, you're right. This may take the award for the, the craziest rabbit hole I think I've gone on this show. <laughs> I was going to say the tangent you didn't expect, but, but no, yeah, it's a very good question. The second part was out of all the external factors that affect things, is there, is there one thing that really affects everything like light or body temperature maybe, or is it all different factors, peripheral factors affect things differently? I think light is one of the the strongest cues in terms of the most studied in the field of circadian rhythmicity and seasonality in particular in impacting and reinforcing and synchronizing biological rhythms. Temperature is one for for humans it's it's a Apparently not as strong of a factor, but it is present. Of, of course, since you hosted the intermittent fa- fasting podcast, um, you must have talked about a ton that food, metabolic intake, and timing of of taking in food is a is a very strong cue to biological rhythmic systems. But I think beyond that, it is important to consider that there are many many things impacting these systems, and and social cues are not to be underestimated in our modern environment. You know, any medications that we take or hormones that we take, or even, you know, some supplements like uh, melatonin, of course, is, is something that's commonly taken. These, these have a large impact on our biological rhythms as well. I've recently been writing a really long blog post. I've been trying to read every single paper I can find on rhythms and how they affect eating. So like, you know, ghrelin and leptin and glucose and insulin. It's so, it's really hard to wade through because there's definitely this dominating idea that eating early is better, but then it's hard to navigate through that and actually look at the data beyond the bias and see what's actually happening. On top of that, there's just not a lot of studies that look at people because a lot of our listeners do intermittent fasting with a later eating window. And there's just not a lot of studies that look at late eating with fasting all day. Normally it's looking at like eating 
and eating later. Right. No, I think it's fascinating. And there is this temptation to be as reductive as possible or to try to generate findings that can then be applied to all of humanity. And although it really does seem like eating earlier in the day is metabolically more manageable, maybe even in in cultures like Spain, where you would traditionally take a nap in the afternoon and then eat quite a late dinner, I, I don't think we should underestimate human variability and the the fact that we have cultures adapted to many different types of eating schedules and environmental constraints. And that one of the themes that often emerges in this research is it's, it's stability of routine is a really important factor. So even if you find something really strange or, or off the wall that works for you, if you do that consistently across your life, then, then that can count for a lot, even if maybe it's not what the average person's ideal time of, of eating is. I'm, I'm often reminded of you know people who are extremely long-lived and people ask them, what's the secret to your long life? And they say, oh, well, every, every day I eat my bacon and eggs with a whole lot of maple syrup on them, and that's what I do. <laughs> or, or people who say, you know, I, I eat plenty of chocolate. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's both when and how consistently that play a big role. 100%. I think that's the conclusion I'm probably going to draw because looking at the data, I don't want to make like a blanket statement, but looking at the data, it, it does seem that early ish or maybe mid afternoon eating is most appropriate, especially if it's like an intermittent fasting type pattern. I think that's probably where the benefits lie for most people. Like I wish I was an early eating person, but I just know I'm not. So I'm not going to try to like force myself into that hole. Yeah. I think that's a really important takeaway as well. That is, especially once one is in the practice of trying different things and paying attention. So going through this personal science method of trying to understand how different routines impact one on, on an individual basis is that if you're reading that the average person has something that they should do every day and you try that and it really doesn't work for you, but something a little bit different does, then that's not something to be easily discounted. Exactly. I love that so much. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. And Azure, you have so much incredible work that you're doing. Was there any other topic you wanted to touch on before we wrapped up? Oh, oh my gosh. I, I don't know. This has been um, so fun to talk to you. You ask wonderful questions and, and you know so much. So it's, um, I feel like we could do probably many of these. I feel like this is a really good start. I mean, I feel like I could probably talk about quantified self or reproductive health across the lifespan or, or any of these things, but we've, we've done a ton already. What do you, what do you think? At some point, I'll start sounding more nonsensical, if not already. No, you've been absolutely amazing. What are you most excited about right now that you're working on? I'm very excited about trying to help build tools for health monitoring across the lifespan for women. So many tools in the field of female reproductive health are targeted towards helping someone get pregnant or helping someone avoid pregnancy. And relatively fewer tools are targeted towards, for instance, helping teen girls understand their adolescence and whether it's going healthily or not. Relatively few tools are targeted towards helping people who have fertility issues. Very few tools are targeted towards continuous monitoring of pregnancy and menopause as well is very underserved. So one of the things I'm I'm most excited for about the future is in continuing to create examples of how continuous wearable data could help create metrics that help individuals understand their reproductive health across the entire lifespan and then be able to make more informed decisions based on it. Well, that is absolutely incredible. And I cannot thank you enough for it. I can't tell you how many times I get questions from listeners asking, 
everything that you just said, like wanting to know more how they can, you know, learn about that practically in their own lives. And the work that you're doing is really, really painting a potentially wonderful future for getting more clarity with all of that. So I cannot thank you enough. For listeners, we'll put links in the show notes, like I said, to all of the papers. But are there any links that you would like to put out there for listeners to follow your work? I will probably share a Google Scholar or, or website. Could I follow up with you via email maybe with a, a couple links? Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So for listeners, we will we'll put in the show notes all of the links that Azure has. And yeah, this has been absolutely amazing. So the last question I actually ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? I'm very grateful, especially after going through, as we all have, the COVID pandemic for the people that I know and I'm getting to reconnect with a little bit more now and the fact that there's something that we can learn from everybody that we talk to. And I'm really grateful for the the kindness and intelligence of my friends and family and mentors, especially finishing up a PhD right now and, and getting to move on into the world. I'm just, I'm feeling very inspired by the the researchers and and friends and um, folks like you that I get the opportunity to talk to and learn from. So thank you very much for for having me today and for your wonderful questions and for for letting me learn from you. No, well, no, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for letting me learn from you. And thank you so much for being here. And again, everything that you're doing. And I'm I'm going to eagerly follow all of your future research and we'll have to bring you back in the future, like with more updates on all the things that you've learned, because this has been absolutely incredible. Well, likewise, I'm looking forward to, to hearing some of your new podcasts that keep coming out. And it's been very lovely to talk with you. So thank you so much. And congratulations in advance on submitting your dissertation today. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks, Azure. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com. And always remember, you got it.